Church, if you have your Bible, please open up to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38 is our text for the day. The title of our message is When Sin Seems Strong. When Sin Seems Strong. Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to read from God's word. You follow along. This is the word of God. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law was going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and set at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. 
But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Church family, this is not the first time in the book of Genesis, if we, as we have been making our way through this first book of the Bible, that we have encountered a passage that makes us feel a bit squeamish at the thought of such sin. It's not the first time we've encountered a passage that makes us, if we kind of get into this story, that makes us feel a bit overwhelmed by the sin. It's not the first time we've encountered a passage that even can make us feel a little gross with sin. And as we read and study God's word, we come to realize that this is not the last time that God's word confronts us head on with the horror and grotesqueness of sin. Already in Genesis, we've seen things such as murder, deception, favoritism, theft, incest, drunkenness, hatred, rape, homosexuality, jealousy and selling a brother into slavery. And folks, we're only 38 chapters into the Bible. Why does God's word, God's word contain such things? Why would we spend time reading and studying such things? Well, church, it's because our lives as humans in a fallen world are full of such things. And God loves us enough to tell us the true story of humanity. Not sugarcoat it, but tell us the true story of humanity so that we will take sin seriously. God loves us that much so that then we will humble ourselves before the holy God as our sin is exposed before him and before us. And so that we would then run to Jesus, who is God's solution to our problem of sin. Brothers and sisters, despite the nastiness of sin in a passage like Genesis 38, there is a beauty that is here to behold if we will have eyes to see and ears to hear. You ask, where in the world is there beauty in a passage such as this? Well, if we if we take the time to study this passage, both in its detail and its wider context in the book of Genesis and then in all of the Bible and salvation history, we'll see that the strength of sin in this passage and throughout the Bible and even in our lives today, Day is no match for the strength of God's grace in overcoming sin. In other words, as much as this passage displays the, the ugliness of sin in our lives, it is a passage that displays the beautiful and amazing grace of God towards sinners. Church family, Genesis chapter 38 teaches us this, that when sin threatens God's promise, God's grace overpowers the sin. When sin threatens God's promise, God's grace overpowers that sin. Remember the context here as we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 38. The promised deliverer is coming, God has told us. And he's coming from the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob family tree. We are looking for the Messiah, the deliverer. And we know that he is either one of Jacob's 12 sons or he's going to come from one of Jacob's 12 sons. The last chapter ended with Jacob's son selling Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, into slavery in Egypt. And if we read ahead in the story, we realize that about 22 years go by before the family is then reunited with Joseph, who spends many of those years in slavery in Egypt. Now let me try to answer a couple of questions you might be asking about this chapter as a whole before we get into the details. First, why this chapter? 
Why, why this chapter with God's word? Why does it have this chapter in it? Let me give you two reasons other than what I've already said about this chapter in highlighting sin, also highlighting the wonderful grace of God. Reason one is this. Judah is going to have a change of heart displayed through a changed character. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 44. Chapter 38, as we're going to see today, fills us in on how the Lord brings about this change in Judah. Heart. So we look at Judah in chapter 37 and he's selling his brother into slavery. Remember, Judah led the charge in that. And then we get to chapter 44. We're going to see a very different Judah. What happened? Chapter 38 kind of helps us know um, uh, what God did in his heart. Then reason number two, why this chapter? And this is a big spoiler alert. OK, if you're concerned about that, this chapter tells the story of the lineage of the Messiah, which is what the whole Bible is about. So there's a couple of reasons why, why this chapter here, what well, helps us make sense of the Genesis story, but it also helps us uh, make sense of the whole story of the Bible. Now, another question, why this chapter here? Okay, that's why this chapter is in God's word. But why this chapter here in between chapter 37 and chapter 39? It, it kind of seems if you're like me, you may think the way that I've thought my whole life reading the book of Genesis. You know, it just interrupts the story. Right. The end of chapter 37, the last verse tells us that Joseph is on his way to slavery in Egypt. And then if you pick up in chapter 39, skip chapter 38, pick up with the first verse of chapter 39. It tells us about what happened when Joseph got to Egypt. Well, this just kind of seems to interrupt the whole story. Here's some reasons why this is not an interruption to the story. Number one, the Bible's main point is to tell us the story of Jesus. Not the story of Joseph. It seems like, whoa, 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 I wanted to hear what happened next to Joseph after he got sold into slavery. But the whole Bible is not about Joseph, it's about Jesus. And this is a passage ultimately about Jesus. So anything that helps tell the story of Jesus is not an interruption to the flow of the story. Church, it is the story of God's word. Number two, another reason why... This chapter is here. Remember that chapter 37 began with the section title. These are the generations of Jacob. And we talked about that some last week. Remember this this section, the rest of Genesis, this section of Genesis is not just about Joseph. It's about the sons of Jacob. These are the generations of Jacob. And if we get so focused on the person of Joseph, which he is an incredible person. I love studying the life of Joseph. We're going to enjoy that. We're going to have fun studying the life of Joseph, even in the weeks to come. But if we get so focused on that and forget that there's other brothers involved, guess what we're going to end up doing? We'll miss the clues to the Messiah, because guess what? The Messiah is not going to again. spoiler alert. It's not going to come through. Joe. He's not coming through Joseph. We'll actually get a really good idea in our passage today about where and who this Messiah is coming from. Reason number three, why this here? Well, it fits the chronology of the story. If you notice verse one of chapter 38, it says it happened at that time. It happened at that time. So the events of chapter 38 take place during the period between them selling Joseph into slavery and then them going to Egypt as we get further in the story and then being reunited. It's about 22 years that pass. And this happens in in between them selling Joseph into slavery and then the brothers actually going to Egypt and reuniting with their brother Joseph. One more reason. Reason number four. 
why this chapter would be here is because in this one, we'll have to kind of remember for next week. OK, um, but this chapter sets up a great comparison between Judah and Joseph, because in chapter 38, as we just read, Judah appears to be ruled by his sexual desire. But in chapter 39, we'll see that Joseph though presented with an opportunity for sexual immorality, has his heart ruled by God and the things of God, and he will make a very different choice there than Judah made. All I have to say, there's a reason for chapter 38, and there's a reason for this account of Judah and Tamar being at this point in the storyline of Genesis. Now, let's walk through some of the details of the chapter and see what we can learn, what we can apply to our lives. We see here this this Judah, this fourth son of Jacob. He's the one, remember, who who had the idea of selling Joseph into slavery. He then leaves his brothers and starts living among the Canaanites. So already we see that he's on a wrong track. If selling his brother into slavery wasn't enough, now he kind of leaves his family and he's living among the Canaanites. He takes a wife from the Canaanites, which we know from previous chapters was not something that he was supposed to do. He has three sons with this Canaanite woman, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. He takes a wife for Ur. Her name was Tamar. We aren't told anything about her family. It's probably safe to assume that Tamar was a Canaanite as well, since Judah had married a Canaanite. He probably picked a Canaanite for his son, but we're not told that. Ur is wicked. Text tells us the Lord put him to death because of his wickedness. And this sets up the part of the story that we would, if we're honest, we kind of like to skip over. In that day and time, and extending all the way through the time of Jesus, we even see this being practiced in the New Testament, the customary practice is what has become known as leveret marriage. Leveret is a, is a Latin word. It comes from a Latin word that means brother-in-law. So think, when you hear leveret marriage, it's brother-in-law marriage. Well, that sounds a little odd. How, how does that work? Well, if a man died before he had children with his wife, his brother was supposed to marry the wife of his deceased brother. So the brother who's still alive is to marry what is his sister-in-law and then have children with her. And those children would take the name of their deceased father, not their not not their biological father, who would have been their uncle, but but their their Deceased father. And the purpose of that was so that the, the, the family name of that of that uh, man who had died, his name could be carried on and would it be wiped out. So the widow is supposed to marry her brother-in-law and they're to get married and have children. So when Ur died, this is the practice. When Ur died, Judah told Onan, fulfill your duty as Ur's brother. He was supposed to have children with um, with his widowed sister-in-law, Tamar. But we see here that Onan acted deceitfully. The text tells us in fairly graphic terms what Onan did. I'll put it this way. He acted like he was doing what he was supposed to do with Tamar, but he was purposefully ensuring that she did not get pregnant and have any children. And the way this is written, if we study the the text here in the Hebrew, it's not something that happened one time. It's something that happened over and over and over What he did, the text tells us, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Church, the first truth that I think we see in this passage, I want to share three with you today. The first truth that I think we see here is this, that God takes sin seriously, and so should we. God takes sin seriously, and so should we. It's easy to kind of get bogged down in the mess we see here and miss the obvious 
Remember, one of the things that clues us in on kind of a main point of a passage is repetition. And two times in just a in just a short space, we see God put somebody to death because they were wicked. Verse seven says, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. Verse 10 says, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, speaking about Onan, and the Lord put him to death also. Now, we don't know what wicked thing Ur did. We do know the wicked thing that Onan did, and maybe we're wondering, well, what was so wicked about Onan's actions? There's a, a, few, a few things that we can see here. Onan, one, was refusing to honor the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. He had the opportunity to be fruitful and multiply, but he was refusing in a deceitful sort of way. Second, he was refusing to honor his deceased brother, uh, his, his deceased brother and refusing to honor Tamar. He didn't want to have children with Tamar because he knew that they really uh, legally, in a way, wouldn't be his. They would they would carry on his brother's family name, which also means that they would get to share in the inheritance on his brother's deceased brother's behalf. So he, he's going to have to share the inheritance with these children because it will be as if his brother is still alive. And so there's a selfish Motivation here at work in Onan's heart. And third, Onan was refusing to participate in the promises of numerous offspring and the promise of a deliverer made to his great grandfather Abraham and grandfather Isaac and father Jacob. Remember, the only way the Messiah is going to come because it's going to be a man born of woman. We know that all the way from Genesis chapter three is going to be if they have offspring. So refusing, willingly choosing to 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 not have offspring is is a way of, in a way, distancing oneself in this context, uh, being a part of Abraham's family from the promises of God. This is the first time in God's word we see God put an individual to death for sin. Now, we've seen God put people to death for sure. Think about the global flood. He put them to get put them to death because of their wickedness. The whole earth was corrupted with sin. But this is the first and then the second time in one chapter we see him put an individual to death for sin. But it's not the last times that we see that. We could flip ahead just a little bit in God's word and we will see God put two of Aaron, the high priest, Moses's brother, two of his sons to death for offering an unauthorized sacrifice before the Lord. They disobeyed God. And you say, well, that's just something that happened in the Old Testament. Nope. Go to Acts. Go to the book of Acts. Guess what? God put a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, to death. Why? Because they lied to their church family about their offering. It really didn't have as much to do with the amount as the fact that they lied about it. They were deceitful to their church family. They deceived their church family and God struck them down. Friends, these are all examples of how seriously God takes sin. In modern slang, we might would say when it comes to sin, God don't play. Right? He doesn't. Something playful about sin in the mind of God. Unfortunately, we don't take sin. I say we because I'm including myself in this. We don't take sin as seriously as God takes it, but we should. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. We ignore sin, though. We laugh about sin. We make jokes about sin. We pretend sin is harmless, but not God. God sees every sin and he takes every sin seriously. He takes sin so seriously that he punishes every sin with death. Either this is this is this is this is the summary of God's dealing with sin. Either you will pay the price for sin or I will pay the price for sin in hell if we don't place our faith in Jesus or you can place your faith in Jesus and know that 
Jesus paid the price for your sin through his death on the cross. But God punishes all sin. He doesn't let it go unpunished. He takes it seriously. Whether it's the fires of hell or the bloody cross of Christ, the Bible without a doubt tells us this news that God takes sin seriously. But the good news is that if we choose to take sin seriously, if we will repent of it, confess it to God, trust in Jesus for salvation, run from sin in our day to day lives. And and if we find ourselves struggling with sin, even as followers of Christ, if we will take whatever uh, we'll, we'll take it seriously and then take whatever steps are necessary to deal with that sin in our lives, maybe praying about it, memorizing scripture, seeking godly counsel, whatever it takes, there's good news. It's God's grace for us that enables us to do those things like take sin seriously in our lives. God takes it seriously. He takes sin seriously, church, and so should we. Let's go back into our story here in chapter 38. Onan is dead now. So what's next? Well, Shelah is next. Ur has died. Onan is the next brother-in-law. Well, now he's dead, so who's the next brother-in-law in line? Tamar still doesn't have any children, right? And so Sheila is next in line. Judah tells Tamar, I will give you Sheila as soon as he's old enough. So he must have been a little bit younger. He's got he's to have another birthday or two, and, um, and then he'll be old enough to become your wife. So why don't you just go back to your father's house, let him take care of you, and then when the time is right, I'll give you Sheila. However, we're basically told in verse 11, if you'll look there, that Judah was lying to her. He thought that Tamar was the reason that his first two sons had died. He thought there was something to do with being married to Tamar that ended up in you dying. And um, and so he's kind of connected to Tamar. He doesn't want Sheila to die. And so in the back of his mind, he's sending her off to her father. He's never going to give Sheila to her. That's his plan. Now, he doesn't say that. He's lying about it. What that meant For Tamar is that Judah was sentencing her to a life of widowhood, which especially in that day and time was a life of great difficulty. She would not have been free to remarry because she was technically engaged, is the word we would use, betrothed to Sheila. Technically, she had to save herself. She couldn't go get married because Sheila's the one that she's supposed to be married to. So she would have spent the rest of her days, and she's probably a teenager at this point. Um, if we kind of do some math in the storyline, she's probably a teenager. She would have spent the rest of her days as a childless widow. Some time passes and she realizes this. She realizes, wait a second, Sheila has had a birthday or two. He's old enough for Judah to have been to have given him to me. Judah has taken no steps to do that. I don't think he has any intention to do that. And so she takes matter into her own hands. She hears that Judah's wife has died. He's traveling to where his sheep were being sheared. So she takes off her widow's garments, dresses up like a prostitute, positions herself on the road that she knows Judah is going to be traveling down. Judah sees her, doesn't recognize her because she's wearing a veil. He gives in to his sexual urges and offers her a goat in exchange for her services. He doesn't have the goat with him, says, I'll send it. She says, prove it. And he says, how about, how about this? She asks for his staff, his signet and his cord. He gives those things to her. Now, the signet was basically like his seal. It, 
his cord was probably the thing that he wore the seal on around his neck. And then he had his staff and his staff most likely had some kind of his signature on it. So the way they did things in those days. This was like asking for his wallet with his ID and his credit cards, because it would have been obvious that these things belonged to him. It was his seal. Not just something you went and picked up at the store, but nobody else had a seal that looked like Judah's seal. It was to signify, I'm signing this. It was his signature, probably on the staff as well. So she was smart in what she's doing here. She had a plan. There would have been no doubt that these items belonged to Judah. He went into her, the text tells us, and she conceived. Tamar hides out in her father's house for three months as if nothing happened. In the meantime, Judah sends his friend with a goat he promised to give to her to look for this prostitute. He gets there. The friend gets there. There's no one there. He asks the men of that place, hey, where's the cult prostitute? And she sa- they say, there's no one here. And he's like, well, that's kind of strange. So he goes back and tells Judah. And Judah's response is, forget about it or people are going to start laughing at us. Because they're you're out here walking around looking for this lady that's not there. And uh, we're going to become a laughing stock. Let's just put it to rest. We're not going to talk about it anymore. I know what I did. You know what I did. Nobody else has to know what I did. End of story. Except it's not the end of story. Because three months later... Tamar can't hide the fact anymore that she's pregnant. And somebody tells Judah, hey, guess what? Your daughter-in-law, she's pregnant. Which means she's been immoral. So why, why is that? Because remember, she's technically betrothed to Sheila. She's engaged to him. Even though Judah has no intention of giving Sheila to her, she's supposed to remain with no one else, be with no one else, unless it's Sheila. And so Judah... Well, mightier than right, more, more, more holier than thou, right? Well, bring her out and let her be burned. Let her be punished for her sin. And as they're dragging her out, she says, hey, make sure you uh, go hand these to Judah and ask him who they belong to. Because, by the way, the child in my womb belongs to the man to whom this wallet belongs to. Remember, no, no it's, it's his ID. There's no there's no denying that those things belong to him. Judah sees those things and we might would call it a mic drop moment, right? Oh, 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 that is what has happened. He had been caught and he admits it. And that's very important for us to notice. Look at verse 26, one of the most important verses in this passage. Verse 26 He says, she, talking about Tamar, is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. Truth number two, church, is this. God exposes our sin to humble us before him. God exposes our sin. Why? To humble us before him. Verse 26 is a moment of humility for Judah. It's him confessing he has been unrighteous. He has been acting like he can do whatever he wants and get away with it. He has married a Canaanite, lied to his daughter-in-law, left her as a childless widow and slept with who he thought was a prostitute. He has been acting like he can do whatever he wants and get away with it. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's me today. 
But maybe today God is doing in your heart what he was doing in Judah's heart. And that was bringing him to a place of humility, humbling him. Maybe today God would humble us as he exposes our sin. It may look very different than Judah's sin. It may not look much different than Judah's sin. It doesn't matter what the sin is. Remember, God takes it all seriously. But maybe as God exposes it in our hearts today, he's going to do so so that we would be humble before him. In fact, I know that's why he would expose sin in your heart, would be to humble you and me before him if we are willing to be humbled. It's interesting that Tamar tells him the same thing that he had told his father. There's some irony in this chapter, just like there was some irony in chapter 37. Joseph had, uh, excuse me, Judah had handed Joseph's brother, remember his younger brother, he had handed that robe to Jacob, his father, that was soaked in blood. And you know what he said? He said, please identify this. The same word is used here now as his wallet, so to speak, his signet and cord and staff are handed to him. And you know what word is there in the text? Please identify these same words, same words, same words that he deceived his father with now are exposing the sin in his own life. Friends, God has ways of exposing our sin and it hurts. But remember, when God exposes our sin, even though it hurts, it is a gift of his grace. Because if we receive the conviction instead of rejecting it in pride, if we will admit our sin instead of ignoring it or shifting the blame to someone else, it will humble us. And a position of humility before God is the best place that we can be because that is when we are ready to receive God's saving grace and heart transformation in our own lives. Judah realizes that Tamar was more righteous than he was. She was more concerned. Think about it this way. She was Tamar, probably Canaanite. She was more concerned about producing offspring for the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob than Judah was. In a way, she cared more about God's promise of a Savior than he did. Not only had Onan rejected God's promise of offspring and what he did, but Judah was, in effect, rejecting the promise of offspring spring by refusing to give Sheila to Tamar. And now Judah humbly admits his own unrighteousness. And guess what? Like I said earlier, if we read ahead in the story, probably a very short time after this experience of being humbled, chapter 44 happens. And in chapter 44, we have a very different Judah than we had in chapter 37. God exposing Judah's sin humbled Judah and ultimately changed his heart. I wonder if that needs to happen to you today. Perhaps God is convicting you of not taking your sin seriously and is exposing it today so that you'll be humble before him and receive his forgiveness. Listen, you cannot deal with sin on your own. You need God's help. And the only way to have God's help is to be humble before him. James wrote this to Christians who were struggling with sin. James said this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sin. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. In other words, stop laughing at sin and start weeping over your sin. Start taking your sin seriously like God does. Humble yourselves before God as He exposes your sin and then get ready to receive His beautiful grace. The church, merely having our sin exposed... And humbly confessing our sin to God does nothing if there is no Savior to rescue us from our sin. 
But praise God, there is, and we see him, or at least an incredible clue, a incredible foreshadowing of him in the final verses of chapter 38. That final little paragraph there in chapter 38, uh, beginning in verse 27, we've got, we've got all of a sudden it's time for this child to be born, except guess what? It's not a child. It's two children. It's twins. She has twins. Tamar has twins. And it's an interesting story that when they're being born, the first stuck out his hand and the midwife tied a, a scarlet thread on his hand. Remember, birth order was very, very, very important. So they had to, and they're going to be twins. So they might look the same, but we've got to label them. All right. Put a little mark on them. Make sure we know which one is first. But then it's kind of like the, the, the second one pushes the brother out of the way. It's like, I'm going to be first. And the second one who was going to be first ends up being the firstborn. The one who pushed his way to the front was named Perez, and his brother was named Zerah. And even though that's kind of an odd story, you say, well, again, why is that in the Bible? That's a clue, a very big clue. Remember how Jacob was born after his twin brother Esau, but God chose Jacob instead of Esau? God likes to do that sort of thing. And so here we have a similar, uh, a similar thing where this switch kind of takes place at birth. And it's a clue that there's more going on here than meets the eye. The chapter ends and the next chapter picks up with Joseph in Egypt. And we don't hear anything more in Genesis about these twin boys of Judah and Tamar. But if we turn to the book of Ruth, which took place about 600 or so years later, we find a beautiful story of a widowed Moabite marrying her Israelite kinsman redeemer named Boaz and having a son named Obed. And at the end of the book of Ruth, there we have a genealogy. And guess who that genealogy begins? with Perez, the one who pushed his way to the front. And guess who that genealogy ends with? It ends with David, King David. That genealogy starts with Perez and ends with King David. You say, so Judah was the ancestor of King David through the offspring of his sinful relationship with Tamar, his daughter-in-law? Yes, that's exactly what happened. And if you're thinking well about the storyline of God's word, then you know that that's actually not the end of the story. You might be saying, wait a second, King David was the ancestor of Jesus. So are you telling me that Jesus traces his earthly lineage back to Judah and Tamar and the sin of Genesis chapter 38? That's exactly what I'm telling you, church family. But you don't have to take my word for it. That's what God's word says. If we were to turn to the book of Matthew, we would find Matthew begins his account of the life of Jesus with a genealogy. And there he starts with Abraham. And he says, Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron. And he goes on and he gets to King David. And then he goes on generation after generation. And then he says this, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Praise God, church, that God's grace in keeping his salvation promise is stronger than the sin that would prevent it. Let me share this last and closing truth with you, church. It's this. God shows his powerful grace by overcoming sin to give us Jesus. This is what I want you to leave thinking about today. God shows his powerful grace by overcoming sin to give us Jesus. Some of you may have thought that as I was reading this passage earlier, you say, well, why don't why you just skip over a passage that's like this, friend? Because it contains good news. And I don't want us to miss out on good news. 
Yes, this passage is full of sin, but it's also full of God. And where we find God in sin, we find judgment towards sin. And we also find God's saving grace in saving sinners. We find that to be true in Genesis chapter 38. And we find it to be true when we get to the cross of Jesus. In Judah's confession in chapter 38 that Tamar has been more righteous than him. We see clearly that he doesn't deserve for the promised offspring to come through him. But the fact that the Messiah does come through him then highlights the grace of God in producing salvation even through sin for those same unrighteous people. And then when we go to the cross of Christ, guess what? We see the same thing except on a much greater scale. We see people, unrighteous people, nailing Jesus to a cross. But what is God doing through that? He is judging and punishing sin. And He is saving even those same unrighteous people who would believe in Him for salvation. You say, how can that be? How can that be? Friend, it's called grace. It means we don't get what we deserve. We get this good salvation that we don't deserve. It's God's grace. In Genesis 38, we see that God graciously works in the lives of sinners. And at the cross, we see that God graciously works in the lives of sinners. Judah didn't didn't deserve to be the one to carry on the promise of the Messiah. Friends, we don't deserve to experience salvation from the Messiah. But God shows us grace. You say, but look how strong the sin was in Genesis 38. Look how strong the sin was at the cross of Christ to which Paul, the apostle, says in Romans chapter five. But where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. It looked like sin here that got the best of God's promise as Ur was put to death. Onan refused to have children with Tamar and Judah wouldn't give Sheila to her. But God, thank goodness, had the last say. His grace overcame the sin and he gave us Jesus church when sin threatens God's promise. God's grace overpowers the sin. So let me ask you what about your sin today what will you do with it will you take it seriously will you humble yourself before the before God as he exposes it and will you receive God's saving grace by trusting in Jesus Jesus died for our sins so that you and me so that we wouldn't have to experience God's wrath towards our sin that is coming one day you say but you don't know what I've done You don't know how strong the sin is in my life. Friend, what does God's word say in Genesis 38 and at the cross of Jesus? It says that sin may seem strong, but when sin seems strong, God's grace is stronger. And so will you give your sin over to the one who is able, powerful enough and who loves you enough to give you the grace to transform your heart and rescue you from that sin. What will be your response to King Jesus today? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are stronger than sin. That your grace is stronger than sin. And God, there is no sin that's too strong. If there's a heart that would be humble before you and cry out, God, forgive me, not because I deserve it, for I am unrighteous. But God, forgive me because Jesus took the punishment for me on the cross. God, rescue you, rescue me from sin. Give me yourself, your power and your love and your grace. God, to defeat sin and destroy it. God, do that work in my heart and life. God, I pray that if there's someone here today who's never 
receive salvation, that that would be their prayer even right now. That even as we sing in a moment, that they would be crying out to you for salvation. God, even for us as followers of Christ, help us to take sin seriously and help us to run back to the cross over and over, not as a license to sin, but to rest in your grace so that we cannot sin anymore. God, thank you for Genesis chapter 38. Thank you for Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.